Thank you, sir. So, John Murray, the exegetical systematician. John Murray was a true Scotch theologian. And by that, I mean he was faithful to the scriptures. He loved the Westminster Standards. He was uh, industrious. He was serious. And so, in short, he was a solid Presbyterian. And this Baptist is particularly thankful for him, even for most of that Presbyterianism. He's little known, but that shouldn't cause us to doubt the breadth of his influence. He's, it's the kind of influence that we should all wish for. It's the kind of influence that another John exemplified whenever he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Whenever some expressed desire for George Whitfield to start, a, to head a denomination, he said something to the effect, let the name of Whitfield perish and the name of Christ endure. And although this John is not well known, it's that same kind of influence that stands, uh, that is his legacy. And his primary labor was to drive men to the Word of God, not to lean on Murray himself, but to drive them to the Word of God. And thus, his, his is that kind of influence that fades into the background, but is so much more potent and enduring. Now, to understand this kind of bent in Murray, we have to begin with his father, Alexander Murray, born 18. 53. He was a road contractor. He was a ruling elder. Now, if you're, you're unfamiliar, our, our Presbyterian friends often make a distinction between uh, preaching elders or teaching elders and ruling elders, or what we might uh, in other circles think of as an, a lay, lay elder or a, or a pastoral elder. And they'll go to 1 Timothy 4.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the, the distinction being more so, whereas we would see that more as a distinction of, of role or, or just simply function or gifting, they will more so make those two offices, not in the sense of the elders ruling the body, but they do recognize a distinction more sharply there. So Murray's father, though, was this godly and pious man, and he had this, this same kind of bold humility that was so attractive in his son. Alexander would pass away at 90 years of age, but before that day came, he made sure that his obituary would not be published in the church's magazine. And uh, he, he was he, that, that kind of, uh, for don't, don't make a big fuss out of me, don't... don't put my name up on any piece of paper. And so it was said of him, he'd rather get a slap in the face than flattery. Uh, he had no concern for the praises of men in that regard. Now, the Free Church of Scotland was in some controversy at that time. There were heresy charges against a number of ministers that were well-founded and documented. And whenever these were brought before the local presbyteries and sessions, uh, no discipline was taken. It was kind of meh, was kind of the attitude towards this. And um, Murray's, uh, what happened was this eventually led to the forming of the Free Presbyterian Church. So that's the Free Church of Scotland. The Free Presbyterian Church would be formed in 1893. Uh, this was kind of a north-south divide. The more orthodox were in the north, and the mm, lax towards all of this were, were in the south. 
and they, Murray and his family lived in the north, and their more orthodox minister decided to stay in the Free Church of Scotland. The Free Church of Scotland had not changed her confessional statements. They were the same. And so he saw himself as, this is, this is our denomination. The confession's the same. They're, they're the ones that should, should be leaving. So he stayed. And while Alexander loved this man, he loved his church, he decided to withdraw and be a part of this new denomination. And, and as we'll see, John was not yet born. Uh, he, he wasn't privy to witness these events but he's going to later make such a move himself. The, the, kind of, the kind of attitude that his father had in regards to these things would come down to his son, be transmitted. So John was born October 14, 1898, the youngest of eight. Five older brothers, two older sisters. The house was small and it was seemingly as full of love as it was of people. His life was set in this serene setting of Migdale, Scotland, uh, just right by uh, Migdale Lock, Lock Migdale, Lake Migdale. And uh, the lake is surrounded by hills, so this is farmland, but it's this, this hilly, beautiful, just idyllic kind of Scottish place. His, uh, the only major biographical source that we have for Murray is Ian Murray, no relation, is Ian Murray's biography of him. And uh, Ian Murray had this to say of his home. For beauty, the location can scarcely be excelled by anything else in Scotland. And so it's going to be clear that Murray's heart first was devoted to Christ. But after that, his heart was pretty devoted to Migdale. He would return there as often as he could. He loved his home. He loved his family. He was there often. When he was converted, we can't say. Uh, his biographer writes, Conversion for some, as he, as John used to say, is like the gentle dawn of day in the northern latitudes where there's no exact moment observable which separates the night from the day. John excelled at school. He was at academy preparing, preparing for university entrance whenever World War I would dawn. And... His older brothers were uh, scattered across various branches. At 18, he enlisted in the Royal Highlanders Black Watch. Now, you've got to give those, those, these older countries their due for having really good military uh, divisions. It was an infantry battalion, but uh, it sounds much cooler to say you're part of the Royal Highlanders Black Watch. While he was firing his rifle... A piece of shrapnel from a shell exploded and struck his eye, and he lost that eye. And he had a glass eye that was such a match that many didn't realize that was the case. So he's discharged because of this eye. Um, he returns home and rose in the University of Glasgow. And the loss of, eye would, of an eye would seem like a pretty serious impediment to a rigorous academic life. But... Uh, he extended his coursework to go from the normal three years to four. But other than that, I find rare, I don't find any instance of it. I, I find one instance of another author mentioning his loss of an eye, but you don't ever find like, in a, in a culture where so many want to use their handicap to beat other people up, it's really refreshing to read of one who scarcely mentioned it, didn't make a big deal out of it at all, and, uh, 
And so he, he, just refreshing, beautiful thing. Upon graduation, 1923, his local session examined him as a candidate for ministry and recommended him to the Northern Presbytery of the church. So just climbing up the hierarchy, they approved him. And he began the three-year period of ministerial preparation according to their, uh, their requirements. And the small denomination didn't maintain a college. Instead, they used the old tried-and-true method of tutoring him out, apprenticing him out. And there was a Mr. Beaton that must have been especially uh, revered in this because he had five students at the time that John came under him. And, but he, he, he soon recognized there's something exceptional about John Murray. And so he came before the presbytery and said, Let's, we need to send this guy to Princeton. Um, he's, he's incredibly gifted. And if I remember right, in some of their minds, the idea was send him to Princeton, then he can come back and train others. He seems especially gifted in this regard. Um, so his expected journey to the United States was not to consume a few years, but uh, 40 years, although with frequent visits back to Migdale during that period. Now, Princeton University originally was the College of New Jersey, established in early colonial America in the wake of the Great Awakening. Uh, its third president, uh, though brief, is one of the most well-known, Jonathan Edwards. But to speak of, of how, how, how rooted this is in our early history here, John Witherspoon, the only minister to sign the Declaration of Independence, was her sixth president. Um, even at that early time, Harvard and Yale were already uh, written off by many Orthodox as incapable of producing sound theologians. It happened that quick. A lot of, of, uh, of um, rationalist Renaissance kind of thinking had already taken such deep root there that Princeton was, was kind of formed in that in that wake of the Great Awakening, both in this controversy between the old lights who didn't like the Great Awakening, they were orthodox but they didn't, and the new lights who were proponents of it. it Princeton was formed because of that, but also just because of this, uh, this idea that Harvard and Yale can't be depended on. Well, later, coming off of Princeton University, coming off of that came Princeton Seminary, two separate institutions, though they were related. And it was formed in 1812 by Archibald Alexander to be followed by Charles Hodge to be ch followed by Archibald Alexander Hodge and then by B.B. Warfield. There was this great legacy of really strong titans of the faith. And so with that line of godly men, the Westminster Confession-loving confession Scots sent their men to Princeton whenever they did send them somewhere. They revered it more highly than Cambridge or Oxford. They thought of Cambridge and Oxford the way that uh, these Westminster Confession-loving Americans thought of Harvard and Yale at the time. In 1912, so 100 years after the founding, Francis Patton, the then president of the school, declared, the theological position of Princeton Seminary is exactly today as it was 100 years ago. She simply taught the old Calvinistic theology without modification. Well, whenever Murray arrived at Princeton 12 years later, 1924, a shift was underway. Though the 225 students sang in chapel on opening day, Faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to thee till death. 
There was a bad omen whenever the minister in that opening chapel service quoted Harry Emerson Fosdick, the liberal minister. Just the previous year, in 1923, over 1,000 ministers of the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA, over 1,000 of them signed the Auburn Affirmation, which denied inerrancy, uh, substitutionary atonement, um, the virgin birth, and it was events, these events that led J. Gresham Machen, who is in the center of the photograph, led him to write Christianity and Liberalism in which he argued that theological liberalism isn't Christianity at all, thus Christianity and liberalism. The faculty of Princeton was not so much divided by liberal theology as it was on liberal theology. By that I mean that the the, the division that began to take root wasn't so much that you had liberal theologians in Princeton and conservative ones, You had them all holding to the same basic orthodoxy, but they took different stances on what should be our response to liberal theology. Machen wrote to his mother concerning the death of Warfield in 1921, It seemed to me that the old Princeton, a great institution it was, died when Mr. Warfield was carried out. And the chief difference was not so much their holding a new theology, but the way that the old theology was held to. And what began to show was that experience or uh, a way of life began to become more important than theology. And so they said we have this, this common ground with these Presbyterian brothers who are liberal. We both want to see this kind of experience of the new birth or this kind of experience of Christianity or this kind of way of living. And still many stalwarts were of the faith were at Princeton. It probably had the best theological faculty of any school around still. Caspar Wister Hodge, grandson of Charles Hodge, took the chair of theology, systematic theology, which his grandfather and his father had occupied. Machen taught New Testament. Gerhardus Voss taught biblical theology. And Murray's brilliance was soon recognized by the faculty. His generosity, his kindness was recognized by the students. Upon graduation in 1927, everyone thought he was going back to Scotland. He would be pastoring a church there. And as the signs of Princeton's demise became more apparent, Machen and others like him took comfort that there were men like Murray who would carry on what old Princeton had stood for. In a 1928 letter, Machen would tell Murray, Your presence added greatly to Princeton Seminary when you were here. I do not suppose that you know fully how important and how salutary was your influence in the student body. If we of the faculty have been able to serve in any measure men like you, then Princeton has not altogether been without use in the world. Even though the institution now perishes, its work will remain. Back in Scotland, he was filling pulpits awaiting ordination when in, when in 1929, Caspar Wister Hodge asked him if he would be his assistant in systematic theology. Well, of this discipline, Murray would later write, The task of systematic theology is to set forth in in an orderly and coherent manner the truth respecting God and His relations to men and the world. He goes on, When we properly weigh the proposition 
that the Scriptures are the deposit of special revelation, that they are the oracles of God, that in them God summons us to the knowledge and fulfillment of His will, unveils to us the mystery of His counsel, and unfolds the purposes of His grace, then systematic theology of all sciences and disciplines is seen to be the most noble, not one of cold impassioned reflection, but one that stirs adoring wonder and claims the most consecrated exercises of all our powers. It is the most noble of all studies because its province is the whole counsel of God and seeks, as not other disciplines, to set forth the riches of God's revelation in an orderly and embracive manner, which is its peculiar method and function. All the departments of theological discipline contribute their findings to systematic theology and it finds all the wealth of knowledge derived from these disciplines to bear upon the more inclusive systematization which it undertakes. He highly esteemed systematic theology. This is the older, uh, older Murray writing here, so you can imagine what his answer to Casper was at this point. He decides to move back to America, take this position, and though he esteemed systematic theology so Highly, he made the task bow to the text again and again. Murray insisted that biblical theology, the unfolding story that we see in the Scripture, and exegesis, the, the science and art of interpreting a text, were the building blocks for systematic theology. That you didn't just quickly assemble a bunch of texts to say this is what the Scripture as a whole teaches on this topic. You had to do the painstaking work of dealing with text after text after text and getting out the full meaning of that passage again and again and then systematizing that. It was systematizing the whole counsel of the Word of God as it stood in each instance. And so he wrote... Biblical theology is indispensable to systematic theology. This proposition requires clarification. The main source of revelation is the Bible. Hence, exposition of the Scripture is basic to systematic theology. Its task is not simply the exposition of particular passages. That is the task of exegesis. Systematics must coordinate the teaching of particular passages and systematize this teaching under appropriate topics. There is thus a synthesis that belongs to systematics that does not belong to exegesis as such. But the extent to which systematic theology synthesizes the teaching of Scripture, and this is its main purpose, it is apparent how dependent it is upon the science of exegesis. It cannot coordinate and relate the teaching of particular passages without knowing what that teaching is. So exegesis is, ex is basic to its objective. This needs to be emphasized. Systematic theology has gravely suffered, indeed has deserted its vocation, when it has been divorced from meticulous attention to biblical exegesis. This is one reason why the charge mentioned above has so much to yield support to the indictment. Systematics becomes lifeless and fails in its mandate just to the extent to which it has become detached from exegesis. And the guarantee against a stereotype dogmatic is that systematic theology be constantly enriched, deepened, and expanded by the treasures increasingly drawn from the Word of God. 
Exegesis keeps systematics not only in direct contact with the Word, but it ever imparts to systematics the power which is derived from that Word. The Word is living and powerful. So systematics cannot be this roughshod, lazy kind of approach to the whole of the Bible. It has to deal with it painstakingly, text by text, slowly, putting together the full content of the Word of God. His fellow student and then fellow faculty member, Cornelius Van Til, the the student, well, the faculty member pictured there with the glasses, uh, would write, The most important thing to be said about John Murray is that he was, above all else, a great exegete of the Word of God. When I say this, I mean that he was an expert in the exegesis of the whole of Scripture, of the Old as well as the New Testament. Again, his biographer writes, the impact of Murray's lectures was the impact of the Word of God itself. And by example, he demonstrated the need for lifelong study of the Scriptures. He was relentlessly and rigorously biblical. One way that can be seen is in his commentary on the book of Romans, a pretty massive tome. It was the only commentary that he ever produced... And the amount of time that he put on it showed the kind of rigor that he thought the text deserved. I I can't give you a a total of the full number of years, but the first volume was published in 1959. He immediately began work on the second volume. He was this industrious man that was continuously working, but he didn't, the second volume didn't appear until 1965. It was this really vivid image in the student's mind to walk into the seminary library and see Murray at the same table with the same huge stack of books working through his commentary there again and again and again. Of this commentary, John Piper writes, I don't think any commentary has surpassed John Murray in theological depth and precision on the book of Romans. The sentences are complex and carefully crafted, and they are penetrating in the depth and scope of their theological richness. So, Murray moves to Westminster, arrives there in 1929. He arrives whenever Machen is leaving to start. Did I say Westminster? Um, uh, Murray comes back to America, teach systematics at Princeton. When he arrives there in 1929, Machen is leaving to found Westminster Theological Seminary, three other faculty members with him. Princeton had changed much. It was already changing, but it changed much in the three years that Murray had been gone. Next year, Murray would join their ranks. He was 32 years old at this point, and he was to spend a total at that institution at Westminster Uh, more years than he had been alive at that point, 37 years at Westminster Seminary. What kind of man does it take to leave an established and prestigious school where there's more stability, where there's more prestige, where there's, there's more safety, to leave an institution like Princeton and join a new and fragile one like Westminster, and to stick with her for 37 years. It's the same, he's cut from the same kind of cloth as his father. That's the kind of man it takes. It was loyalty that caused him to leave, and it was loyalty to cause him to stay. Loyalty to the Word of God. The deepest kind of roots of longevity and commitment 
to a place are actually first a kind of loyalty and devotion to God. And this kind of loyalty and devotion to the Word of God is the reason why he left and the reason why he stayed. This, this kind of doing a, a new venture wasn't something of just the, the bravado of an adventure, of, of something new, of a new enterprise. It was loyalty that produced those kind of actions in Murray. Now ponder what loyalty to a place, however small and insignificant her beginnings, can produce. That first class had only 55 students to Princeton's 177 that year. But how many students did Murray teach over those 37 years? And then consider how many of those students actually became teachers, teaching other theological students. For instance, John Frame is a very popular and beloved uh, systematic theology professor. He sat under John Murray. That shows you how not far removed we are from John Murray. Uh, he, he, uh, so uh, John Frame sat under John Murray, and then he would fill his chair for a number of years at Westminster. And Frame is just one example of a whole generation of men that all of them received their systematic theolo- theological training under John Murray. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say. You've got to consider the, the time frame of what's happening here. And Princeton has failed. And, and though there are some other good schools at this time, it's not too much of a stretch to say that if you have an orthodoxy-loving Presbyterian studying in seminary today, enjoying orthodox teaching, they're very likely enjoying the heritage and legacy of John Murray. If, not, if, the, if their uh, seminary instructor wasn't taught by John, chances are they were taught by someone who was taught by John Murray. The tensions which split Princeton and then gave birth to Westminster would soon split the PCUSA and give birth to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church July 11th, 1936. And that uh, following year, uh, Machen... Would, and Machen was involved in all of this. He was involved in the, he was the first president. He founded Westminster. He founded this new denomination. And then he dies the following year after the OPC was formed at 55. <clears throat> so often in such times like this, a whole lot of the movement is held together by personality. And whenever that personality dies, uh, people get very fearful. So things are tremulous enough already with all of this. Machen, everything's new. Machen has died. But then the attack is not only kind of coming from without, from these people we've withdrawn from. Now it's coming from those we've withdrawn with. Um, fundamentalism is on the rise. Uh, Machen was, at, at the beginning, that, that word had no kind of negative connotation as we think of it. Machen was a fundamentalist. They were standing for the fundamentals of the faith. But fundamentalism, uh, some guys wanted to take all the fun out of it, and it started to get ugly. And they basically had two tenets that they stressed more heavily, premillennialism and teetotalism. And they made these tests of faith, tests of orthodoxy, well, being a Scotsman, you can imagine where John Murray fell on the issue of alcohol. And so these, uh, these men would withdraw again. 
from uh, from the new OPC to form the Bible Presbyterian Church and what would become Covenant Theological Seminary. Now, in these two leavings, I think you see the difference between schism and faithfulness. Schism and faithfulness. Whenever it, time is borne out that Machen and Murray made the right decision in leaving Princeton and in leaving the PCUSA. They're, they're heretics. They've denied the faith. But what happened whenever this, this later divide came across with premillennialism and uh, teetotalism, that's schism. It's, it's, and what, what's going to determine it is, is, is there grounds on the Word of God to divide here? And whenever you're unnecessarily doing this, whenever anathema hasn't been legitimately pronounced by the Scriptures on this person, and you're causing those things to be an issue, then you're guilty of schism. Uh, so, John Murray, in a journal article, after exegeting the pertinent passages of Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, writes, Those who, through lack of knowledge and weakness of faith, have not attained to the mature understanding that nothing is unclean of itself, and that every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused, must not be allowed to erect to their, their own ignorance and weakness as the standard of morality and piety. Too frequently, the weak have presumed to regard as faith what in reality is doubt. And sadly enough, those strong in faith and mature in knowledge have succumbed to the presumptuous claims and pretensions of the weak. How tragic. Those strong in faith and mature in their understanding must not despise or set at not the weak. But they must never allow the weak to drag them down to the lower level on which the faith and understanding of the weak operate. If the strong allow this to happen, then they not only bring themselves into bondage, but they also allow the truth of God to be compromised and the integrity of the Creator to be maligned. He further states, The progress of knowledge, of faith, of edification, and of the fellowship of the body of Christ is not to be secured by legislation that prohibits the strong from the exercise of their God-given privileges and liberties, whether this legislation be civil or ecclesiastical. Legislation can never be based upon the conscience of the weak or motivated by consideration for the conscience of the weak. If once we allow such considerations to dictate law, enactment, or enforcement, then we have removed the ground of law from the sphere of right and wrong to the sphere of erring human judgment. Boy, this sounds really pertinent to today, doesn't it? God has given us a norm of right and wrong, and by that norm, laws are to be made and enforced. When we, in the interest of apparent expediency, erect laws or barriers which God has not erected, then we presume to act the role of lawgivers. There is one lawgiver. When we observe the hard and fast lines of distinction which God has established for us and refuse to legislate on those matters that in themselves are not wrong, then we promote the interest of Christian ethics." When we violate these lines of distinction, we confuse and perplex the whole question of ethics and jeopardize the cause of truth and righteousness. We dare not attempt to be holier than God's law, and we dare not impose upon the Christian's conscience what does not have the authority of divine institution. Well, in the wake of this brouhaha, only 28 students would be at Westminster the next year. Cut, or, cut, cut these... The, this new group about in half. And it would be 1953 before enrollment again passed 50. 
So think of Westminster, and I'm so thankful for Westminster Theological Seminary. Think of everything she stands for now and the prestige that she enjoys and the large enrollment she enjoys now. And we're thankful. This, this should increase our thankfulness to men like Murray who stood there, and because of him, the institution is what it is. But you have to realize it wasn't that at its inception. The reason why she stands as she does today is because men were willing to sacrifice so much for her to exist as she does now. Well, uh, not all was bleak. At this time, the school did find a permanent position. She was in a four-story home in downtown Philadelphia that uh, a a generous benefactor was giving them. They found a, a nice kind of place to expand and grow out in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And uh, World War II was on, uh, was on the horizon, and that could mean increased enrollment because future ministers were exempt from service. But with John Murray at the school, having sacrificed an eye in a previous war, you can imagine that would curb any uh, prospective students from not taking seriously any kind of duty that which they owe to their country. Murray challenged the entering class of 1944 with these words. It may have appeared to you that theological study in the quiet of these halls and of this campus is remote from the most practical contribution which you could render in the exigencies of this present time. Unless for some physical reason you are ineligible for military service, I hope you have felt something of the urge to enlist in the services of your country in the present emergency. Indeed, I hope you have felt that urge in a very potent way. I hope you have found it very difficult to take advantage of the opportunities and privileges that you are now being given, that are now being given you when so many of your fellow countrymen have to face the hardship and peril of the field of battle and face these perils and endure so many hardships for the protection of the many privileges that are now yours. If perchance you have not weighed these considerations, then I hardly think your decision to follow the course upon which you have embarked is worthy of your privilege and of the task that lies ahead of you. What I mean is simply this, that I hope it has been hard for you to come here, and hard for the very reason that it offers you an immunity from the hard, bitter, and painful ordeal through which many of your fellow countrymen of your age are being called upon to experience at the present time. Why then do we welcome you to Westminster? On the assumption that yours has been a painful decision. Why do we congratulate you? We do so for this reason. You have come here, we trust, because of divine compulsion. You believe you have been called by God to prepare yourselves for the gospel ministry. Well, at this point, much of Murray's life is without variation. He taught class after class after class. He would teach not only systematics, but the Westminster Confession, sanctification, Old Testament biblical theology, Christian ethics, the person and work of Christ, Romans, covenant theology. He rarely allowed for questions in class. Uh, to hear John Murray speak of that, it's, it's quite humorous. You just didn't ask a question in class. But he was a bachelor, he lived on campus, and he was available outside the class all the time for questions, and the students valued that time. Alan Harmon, one of his students, notes, for many of his students, the time spent with him in personal conversation were perhaps the times they cherished most. He was ever ready to discuss theological questions, and a good deal of Reformed theology was imparted in this way. 
living among them, it wasn't just his, his teaching, his wisdom and that sort that was so valued. It was his real obvious piety. In fact, he was kind of the source of, of, of understanding that, that uh, the, the Reformed faith is not just something that's done with the head, but something that's done with the life. And, and he had this rich kind of piety that his presence was valued in Westminster. He kind of embodied that part of the, of the school and, and carried that legacy forward. At this time, his influence was beginning to spread through his writing as well. Most of his writing was done for academic journals. He did write a number of articles for magazines. You know, there would be like a magazine for the Presbyterian Church, and that would go forward. And those were more popular-level popular books. Um, so he's, he's, uh, he's writing, and, and really the only uh, book that's of those kind of popular-level writings that came out was Redemption Accomplished and Applied. This was my first exposure to Murray in 2007. I, I had just taken my full first full-time uh, ministry position, and my, uh, my seminary experience was pretty meager in systematic theology and soteriology. And so this little book was so rich and good for me because it's a systematic treatment of, uh, of, of, of soteriology to, to go to Murray and learn of effectual calling, regeneration, faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, union with Christ, glorification, the ordo salutis, to, to go to Murray and to learn from him was foundational in my understanding. And this small book was, has impacted many others. Carl Truman has written the foreword for the new version, and he speaks of being converted in the mid-1980s and, and being hungry for, for doctrinal truth, and he's looking for good books. And the first one a minister recommends to him, is, actually gives him, is J.I. Packer's Knowing God, and he, he, that was good for him. And he's looking for something else, and someone says, read John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, and had to go to, went to the local Christian bookstore. They didn't know anything about it, had to order it. And he speaks of his disappointment whenever his book arrives and he goes to receive it, and it's this little book. He's expecting a, something much weightier. And he writes, My disappointment did not survive the first chapter. He goes on to call it a work, the work a miniature masterpiece of theology. And uh, though, though small, it is dense, and that, that denseness isn't unique to this title. It's something that's in all of Murray's writing. One author has said that 200 pages of Murray is worth 400 of any other author. And one reason for that is because you won't find much, by the way, of illustration, metaphor, elaboration in that kind of sense. Uh, not a lot of stories. Uh, it's it's pretty well. It you just feel like you're reading a Scotsman, straight to the point, serious, giving you the facts. J.I. Packer, in his foreword to Murray's Principles of Conduct, a, a book on ethics, Christian ethics, writes: Had John Murray been blessed with the luminous literary grace of a C.S. Lewis or the punchy rhetoric of a Charles Hodge? His name would have been up in lights for the past half century as the finest Reformed theologian of our time. Unfortunately, his genius was not in his prose style. His readers have always found him tough sledding. Also, he interacted mainly with older literature, 
so that those for whom history was bunk and who wanted only snappy comments on the latest theological fads and fancies had to go elsewhere. Few have yet appreciated him at his true worth. But yet, he is appreciated. His works are still in print. They're still bought. They're being reprinted. And here is a great lesson. Substance trumps style. And this is coming from someone who highly values style, who, who thinks whenever that, that style should be subservient to truth. But whenever it is subservient, whenever style knows its place, it can be a great assistance to the telling of the truth. But nonetheless, if you're going to choose one, choose substance. Men purely devoted to style are faddish. Men devoted to substance, however bankrupt they might be of style, yet endure. To the average person, I would only recommend read a redemption accomplished and applied. They don't need to go any further than that unless they, uh, unless they you know, they, they're getting kind of serious. They, they want to read some more. They really like that. To pastors, I would encourage them, do buy us four volumes, especially to note volume two is, uh, is a collection of, of things he wrote in that kind of systematic theology vein and uh, the, all those journal kind of articles, and they're arranged and categorized such that the best attempt you could get at sitting in John Murray's systematic theology is put there. Before we move on to his final years, I have to note that in 1954, his 25th at Westminster, in 1954, a young lady by the name of Miss Valerie Knowlton took some courses at Westminster. And a number of friendly letters were exchanged from them. She, she was in the academic world, and, and they would exchange letters of this sort. But in 1967, upon his retirement, he decided that he couldn't leave America for Scotland without taking a little bit of America back home with him. And on December 7th, they were wed. He was 69, she was 30. The next December, a child was born to them, Logan, in a few more years, she would, uh, he would have a sister, and Margaret. And he was often preaching throughout Scotland at this time. He, he had long been an advisor to Banner of Truth Trust. He was now a trustee. Um, in 1972, he virtually became the preaching pastor at the Free Church of Ardgay. Uh, there, it wasn't anything formal, but they just asked him, could you keep on preaching here? And he did, and he loved it. And he wasn't to enjoy as long a life as his father, he died May 8th, 1975, at 76 years of age. His little Anne Margaret died a year later. But that was only a more grand retirement that surpassed even his return to Scotland. Reflecting on the man, Van Til wrote, John Murray, I held in high esteem as a Christian as a personal friend and as a colleague for many years. As to his character, there was first his deep humility before God and even before men who were with him as he knew seeking to serve their master. There was second his boldness. He feared God and therefore feared no man. His reputation as a scholar was never of primary concern to him so long as by his work the triune God of Scripture was magnified. In both these respects, he resembled Dr. Machen and Dr. Voss. Humble boldness marked John's every doing. No less 
when he was known throughout the world as the greatest living Calvin scholar than when he first began his career of teaching as an instructor at Princeton. There was third, his faithfulness. Faithfulness toward God, toward God and then toward men. Back in 1929, John promised Caspar Wister Hodge that he would teach under him as an instructor for a year, even after the split. This was a promise to a man, but for John, a promise to a man is first of all a promise to God. Another friend, Alan McRae, uh, to, the, to the right of Murray, Alan was one of those who left Westminster and the OPC for the fundamentalist faction, but nevertheless had this high esteem for John. He, he writes of him, John, with one eye, did more reading and study than most Christian workers do with two eyes. His life presents a picture of loyalty to Christ and to the Scripture, of kindly interest in all other human beings, particularly those of the household of faith, and of energetic, tireless activity to make his beliefs known. His example should encourage every one of us as we seek to emulate his faithfulness and his industry. As a final point, let me pick, on, pick up on that humility that Van Til mentioned. That humility that boldly sought to put Christ forward. When a publisher asked him to supply uh, information regarding his life for a major forthcoming publication, this is what John wrote. John Murray, professor of systematic theology. Master of Arts, Glasgow, 1923. Bachelor of Theology. Masters of Theology, Princeton Theological Seminary, 1927. That was it. Though, of course, differing on baptism, he was good friends with Baptist, Reformed Baptist A.N. Martin. Whenever Al wrote him to express his gratitude for his works, his writings, Murray responded, I received your letter of the 19th yesterday. It is not possible for me to give adequate expression to my appreciation. Furthermore, I've been filled with surprise, for I could not have thought that my writings could have been to you of what you've so kindly stated. And that you should have taken the time to write at such length adds to my sense of indebtedness to you. So, my friend, thank you. In all this, we have to realize more and more that God has put the treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. It is cause for amazement that I should be in any degree used to contribute to the advance of the gospel. It is all of grace and only exemplifies what is true of salvation in all its aspects and to its utmost reaches, the praise of the glory of God's grace. Eternity will not exhaust our amazement as it will not exhaust the praise of God's glory and the marvels of redeeming love. Oh, how remiss I am in exploring and appropriating the riches of grace. How remiss we all are. But how thankful I am for God's making known to me something of those riches through His servant, John Murray. And so, I'll close with a passage in which John Murray reflects on that very grace. What does redemption mean? It does not mean redeemability, that we are placed in a redeemable position. It means that Christ purchased and procured redemption. This is the triumphant note of the New Testament whenever it plays on the redemptive chord. Christ redeemed us to God by His blood. 
He obtained eternal redemption. He gave Himself for sin in order that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify to Himself a people for His own possession, zealous of good works. It is to beggar the concept of redemption as an effective securement of release by price and by power to construe it as anything less than the effectual accomplishment which secures the salvation of those who are its objects. Christ did not come to put men in a redeemable position, but to redeem, a people, but to, redeem to Himself a people. We have the same result when we properly analyze the meaning of expiation, propitiation, and rec- reconciliation. Christ did not come to make sins expiable. He came to expiate sins. When He made a purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ did not come to make God reconcilable. He reconciled us to God by His own blood. Oh, the riches of His grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for John Murray. Because he's just a further example of the riches of Your grace. You gift Your church with shepherds and teachers. And you gift them to us in Christ to magnify Christ and make much of Christ. And I pray the kind of humble boldness that is seen in John Murray would be evident in all of our lives. A kind of disappearing so that Christ is brought forward. I pray that the same way that Murray was so insistent that we go to the Word, that that would be such a drive in us, that long after we are gone, you would have used us in such a way as your servants, that there would be others so bowing to your Word. In the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Questions, comments? Yeah.